Caribbean salt spray stung William Walker's eyes. He squinted. Waves opened up before him as the lush green hills and swamps of Central America rolled over the horizon behind him. His pride smarted much more than his eyes. He had been defeated. For more than a year, Walker and his army of freebooters had ranged across the country of Nicaragua. First, he stood in the employ of the liberal government of León, taking the conservative stronghold of Granada for himself. As commander of the army, Walker controlled the country through his puppet, the provisional President Rivas. That pliable lawyer and former head of state served his purposes nicely, but the cogs were turning too slowly. Eventually, Rivas's illusion of control had become too much of a roadblock, so Walker took the title himself. He was certain, absolutely certain, that the Americans of the South would support his efforts in Nicaragua when he reinstituted slavery. He was right, of course. The Americans did support his rule. But that was not enough to save him from his failure. The coalition of Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador, and Costa Rica was too much for his military contingent to weather. Damnable cowards, he thought. These floating blowhards could have made the difference. It was in the service of the plutocrats of America that he had found himself in that country in the first place. He was one in a long tradition of so-called filibusters. These were men, often in the employ of America's young industrialist class, who waged private wars in the hope that the conquered land would be annexed by the United States. Walker had done this dance before, in Baja, California, and in Sonora against the Mexican government. He had failed in those instances as well. This time, he thought, it was the fault of the United States Navy for abandoning him, and of those plutocrats he had thought would be so pleased by his reintroduction of slavery. The Vanderbilts and their leashed dogs had undermined him, fearful of his personal empire and jealous of the wealth that awaited him. For days and weeks, the salt of the sea and the sting of failure filled Walker's nostrils until the Navy craft arrived in New York City's harbor. Walker briefly reflected, So much failure in my past. Could I simply be an absolute disaster of a human being? No, it's the worthlessness of everyone else that's prevented my domination. He disembarked, already intent on returning to the nations of Central America to exact his revenge and profit from his bloodletting. William Walker's campaigns into Central America and Mexico were but one chapter in the long, entangled history of American intervention in Latin America. Filibusters from the United States and European adventurers consistently ranged into Central and South America in search of personal wealth and acclaim. It was not a cheap endeavor. Sponsors funded campaigns that solidified these same sponsors' interests in the area. Names like Vanderbilt and Roosevelt and United Fruit, industrial and political titans of their age, took more than passing glances at the southerly countries and profits that could be secured there. Beyond Walker, the big-stick method of foreign relations determined under Teddy Roosevelt's administration smashed the door open for more imperial outposts. The somewhat less flashy dollar diplomacy and insertion of public-private partnerships into foreign affairs that followed under Howard Taft and Philander Knox's State Department extended the parasitic reach of American capital. We in America have forgotten that we are, in fact, an empire. From 1912 until 1933, the United States officially occupied the country of Nicaragua. Marines stormed the wooded countryside and held up plantations producing cocoa, coffee, fruit, and other commodities for export, largely to tables far in the north. But before Americans occupied this country, invasions and interventions into Nicaragua, like William Walker's, 
plagued relations between the behemoth of manifested destiny and the small, unstable republic in this isthmus of the Americas. The long history of the area, now known and organized as the country of Nicaragua, cannot be condensed into this one episode. Needless to say, strife and exploitation was ubiquitous in the colonial development, or underdevelopment, of that country. Few enough people know about the military and monetary aggression that the United States government used to control its southerly neighbors, those in its backyard. Even if one recalls filling in multiple-choice questions about Teddy Roosevelt's big stick on a middle school history exam, one might easily forget that United States imperialism stretched beyond his presidency and the Panama Canal. As this co-host can attest, Americans do not like to review their history over much. In this first part of Managua About Town, we'll review the long history of Nicaragua and focus on the 1909 ouster of Jose Santos Zelaya, the reform-minded president of Nicaragua at the turn of the 20th century, and provide background for part two. In the second installment, our focus will shift to the rebellions that initiated the Sandinista movement and the United States' reasons for eventually abandoning their 20-year occupation. If we are capable, we will go into a part three, and this final chapter of our discussion will examine the end of the Somoza dictatorship, which was supported by the United States for nearly half a century, and the triumph of the Sandinistas in the face of death squads touching on the infamous, if poorly understood, Iran-Contra affair. So, hey, Phil, how are you doing? Honestly, not too bad. I mean, the world is burning, but my mental health has been pretty decent lately, so I am not the type to, to look a gift horse in the mouth on that one. Hmm. Well, um, that's But nice. I, uh, you know, I obviously use this time of luxury to try to be a better person to the people around me since I'm, you know, other people are definitely suffering. In that vein, Kyle, how are you holding up? Yeah, it's been, um, it's been kind of tough like all of my income is kind of dried up and things are just a bit stressful uh my wife's out on assignment in another state and it's been a while since we've been like separate like she works as a stage opera uh, a stage manager for opera and so like when she's we used to do this all the time and it wasn't a big deal in part because you know i had a steady job that let me take stuff on the road so i could go and visit her when she was, you know, right now she's on the other side of the country. But now, of course, it's been two, oh, about two years since we she's done this kind of, you know, long distance stuff. So it's been pretty tough. I mean, and of course, the ravages of capital certainly haven't made your employment situation millions of times <sighs> worse. No, uh, they certainly haven't. It's it's actually this is the best system and definitely the one that makes it good. It's like, you know, the last year, t- 21 has been... It's been really fucking rough money-wise. Like, you know, Lucy's mom passed away and there was a lot of uh, expenses with that. And then medical bills piled up. And now, you know, obviously I've spent a fair amount of this year unemployed. So it's like, or, you know, if not fully unemployed, basically working for nothing, like with no hours. So... Well, let's hope that this is let's hope that this is the rock bottom part of your experience and that it gets it's all up from here. 
I always think about that meme that's um I think it's got to be a guy either in the uh IRA or it's a dude in I don't know Eastern Europe but there's a dude that's like wearing a balaclava and he's he's standing inside of a technical like at the uh gun and he's staring into the camera and he's like hey friend I know things are going pretty bad right now and then it cuts right into his face and it's like but it's gonna get a whole lot worse <laughs> and i'm like yeah. that's i mean <laughs> and sadly there is a very real possibility that that's the uh direction that everyone's headed not just yourself but yeah let's hope yeah. that let's hope that you specifically somehow <laughs> go, i would uh, like to have tailspin if yeah. the rest of the world can burn around you, but it'd be great if you weren't also on fire. Right. I'm going to go – I'm just doing – I'm going to do the, the Nietzsche stuff. I'm going to go full individualist, abandon I mean, the connect, collective. I will become the Ubermensch. I will ex, uh, I will stretch away from my animal form. It would be hard to blame you in some way, but also then I would lose quite a bit of respect for you. So, I you know, it's a few. All, I mean that, that's, that's the question. Like that, do you want to respect yourself or do you want money? <laughs> Um, yeah, I wonder. I wonder. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. So let's introduce the, the pod. This is Left in the Past. I'm Kyle, and I'll be your tour guide through historical events, some of which will probably be uh, less depressing than this one. But today, that can't be the case. And I am Phil, and I'm the audience surrogate who does not realize just how much evil – I mean I recognize it in an intellectual level, but point by point, the amount, sheer amount of evil shit we've done is always startling to me because I am not a historian. Yeah, I would I, I would hesitate to call myself a historian. I, uh, I am a person who has read a lot of shit, and I have like a, a fucking bachelor's in history, so it's not a historian. People, some thing. people still call that historian because eh. of the low bar we set in culture i'm not setting that bar for myself though <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna say that i'm just yeah, i i've read some shit so i'm gonna You're read a it history back nerd to you. there you go yeah history i don't like history buff either i kind of dislike that i think because the people that i've met who have called themselves history buffs tend to be like weird reactionary dudes and like I like I'm all about learning about military history that's kind of interesting but when you learn about it to glorify it it's really weird yeah um well Either way, um, yeah, between our – by our powers combined, we will teach you <laughs> – I mean we'll teach you exactly how this stuff went down. But I want to let you know on the top of the pod, uh, as someone who's just uninformed, Teddy Roosevelt was an awesome – like he was our most awesome president, right? And he was just like, oh, I'm all about being a badass and saving the world. Oh, and yeah. No, I, never, I don't do bad shit because he, I'm just so, he... so, bad, so awesome. I got shot. That means I'm awesome. <laughs> yeah, he got shot and talked through a speech. He was part of the Rough Riders. He had a badass mustache. He uh, was the last real American president, like really tough guy, um, which is how you would have been taught about him in middle That's school what I and in high, high school. school. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, mixed mixed reviews. Like every president, you look back on and you're like, these guys actually kind of shit. And so we're going to be talking today about uh, uh, specifically the 1909 like coup that we incur that we uh, basically orchestrated in Nicaragua and a, a lot of background. Uh, we've already mentioned up uh, up front what kind of background we're going to be covering, but um, yeah, it's like Teddy Roosevelt and Howard Taft. You know, you think about Howard Taft getting stuck in the bathtub. You don't think about the fact that he was part of a kind of turning away from Teddy Roosevelt's kind of blustering big stick diplomacy stuff to what is called 
dollar diplomacy in, uh, I suppose, American studies. And dollar diplomacy it really isn't as much of a change from the big stick. It's just a change in the mechanisms of the big stick. It's like once we've smashed open the doors into these countries, we then allow American investors Big names, people that, you know, like one of our main characters today, Philander Knox, is the – firstly, a fucking ridiculous name to name somebody Philander. Like how do you name somebody that – it sounds like Philanderer. It sounds like he's, you know, a, I mean, a fucking Knox. Is, is it pronounced <laughs> Philander or Philander? I think it's Philander, but maybe it's Philander. Still, I'm going to say way, dumb, on the page, I mean, it looks like you're calling yourself a pedophile, and that's not great, bud. <laughs> I'm pedophile. <laughs> I'm pedophile. Oh god! <laughs> Running down uh, the fucking airport. Train god airport only. Yeah. Oh. Such a funny show. Oh man, we need to do an IT crowd. Uh, ah, watch yeah. along. I mean, that would eventually. Be a fun one. But anyhow, yeah, we're getting into. Uh, we'll we'll start a lot further back. So we're gonna start with like pre-Columbian Nicaragua is like a timeline. Very very brief talking about this because, uh, you know. The majority of human history occurred long before this modern age, and Back while the, uh, a fuck ton of stuff has happened, about six hundred years ago. Yeah, right. The long, long years ago, less even, but like, um, so like prior to the arrival of Spanish conquistadors, the people who inhabited the long, thin stretch of land, you know, that starts in uh, the Yucatan Peninsula in the south of Mexico, and then eventually widens back out into South America where it turns into Colombia and all that. These people lived like regular kind of lives of subsistence, things that you would expect. Oh no, what? This was forever ago. They had to be they hadn't even discovered tools yet, obviously. Yeah. Uh, these were ignorant savages. These were ignorant savages, obviously. Yeah, no, it's 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 um a lot of times people point to firstly, obviously, the 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 people of that area had incredibly diverse cultures so it's impossible to say it's a monolith just like you look at the cultures of europe at the exact same time it's i would say it's a bit more homogenous in europe probably but um at least i guess not because the linguistic like flattening it really only happened in the modern age but in like the 13th 14th century most europeans are living the same way you know they're living uh, subsistence lifestyles. They're living in small groups of, you know, maybe a few hundred in a village, probably less, to essentially provide a reproductive lifestyle for their, you know, culture. Uh, and it's not that different for the people who were living in pre-Columbian Nicaragua and pre-Columbian Central America. These people, uh, in a lot of ways, like melded the the cultures of like the Andes. Uh, you know, when you think of like the Incan empires, those those kinds of larger um, kind of I guess super cultures in the south, and then in the north, you also have the Maya and the Aztec who. Well, the Aztec, who are one part of a larger Mesoamerican superculture, they would like, you know, because they're coming into contact with them. It's not like people are living in in holes. There's trade existing. You know, there's things moving around in the area. So these people who are living in what is now Nicaragua had a lot more. They had a lot more interactions with people than I think we often think of pre-Columbian societies. You know, we think of them much more insulated. Okay, so it sounds like they were like a pretty self-sufficient group of people. Sounds like they're capable of you know living 
relatively modernized life at the time. So obviously, our our you know the capital empires of the world, the powerhouses of the time, decided we could just leave yeah. these folks alone. They got their shit yeah. Together. Well, uh, unfortunately, new. So I've been reading this book about. Uh, I've been reading Patrick Wyman's book, The Verge, which is uh, pretty good. And the first chapter is about Columbus. And one of the things that he mentions, uh, it's like this kind of impulse that was uh, justified kind of by the long battle against, um, you know, like Muslims in along the Barbary Coast and in Turkey, uh, this long kind of fortress Europe almost. Obviously, you're, they're constantly fighting in, inside of each other, but this kind of Christendom uh, inspired racism that essentially, you know, it, it means that you take what you can get. There's the beyond even just the Catholic or the Christianity part of it. Like there's this burgeoning capitalism and it demands to be fed. And when they see this massive, very uh, productive land, uh off to the west they take it they just grab it so columbus arrives obviously but he he never actually sets foot in nicaragua he goes all the way down the mosquito coast which is basically the atlantic side the caribbean atlantic side of nicaragua but never steps in and goes to panama but it wouldn't be for another 20 years after he had you know initially like i guess mapped the coast that somebody would actually show back up and this is about the time where uh, – I don't know if you've ever seen the cartoon movie The Road to El Dorado. This is about the time <laughs> where the Spanish totally found a hidden city full of actual solid gold and made of gold, and it totally happened like that. You know, I think we should do an episode on the El Dorado stuff because there's actually like a really interesting um, thing where uh, a lot of a lot of people – specifically, we're talking about a, a little further north in like the Yucatan area, but there was like – uh, a chief would be like, uh, you know, the conquistadors show up and he's like, let me tell you, there is this wonderful place. You just have to go away from my village and there's this awesome place just a few miles down the road. It's made out of whole ass gold. Just go that way and leave me alone. And that like in in the kind of diverting these idiot uh, Spaniards, these greedy uh, proto-capitalist further and further out um the 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 kind of story of El Dorado had to be like built up and up in the in the te- retelling. Yes, because heaven so. forbid they actually say, "Oh, we got fucking duped by uh, what we consider savages," and you know, right, some right. humans. <laughs> At that point, too, it's like you. There's always that weird like dichotomy between like when you you know the wily savage where you can be like tricked by them, but they're also savage, so you shouldn't be tripped tricked by them. There's that weird. I don't know, contradiction that is in the colonial mind. What? Imperialists use doublethink? <laughs> Never. Eventually, you know, they do they do get into um they do get into Nicaragua. They they uh kind of set up shop down in Panama and then range out from there, the conquistadors. And, you know, they pursued the usual strategy of communication, division, and conversion. Important to all these expeditions, especially like if you research about Cortez, is uh, translators, people who would act as intermediaries and speak with important leaders in these areas and then who would communicate the will of the Spanish. Uh, Divide and conquer ruled in domination of Nicaragua, erroneously titled for a misunderstood name of a local chief. They basically fucked up saying this guy's name and then named a country after it. Uh, uh, yeah, it I t- love when shit like that happens in history. Like, <laughs> I, honestly, we're going to turn, turn our dumbass mistake into – 
an official name for the yeah. entire place y'all live. If you can't hide it, feature it. But uh, it took about it took over a century for them to actually like completely dominate Nicaragua. Uh, like it, you know, it, it's kind of almost a forgotten fight, century. Put up for some savages with no tools, right? Yeah, I mean, like the fact uh, that um, you know, besides the fact that disease was very much not decimating because that's to kill one in ten. We're talking about killing nine in ten. We're talking about on the high ends, people assume no, ninety to ninety-five percent. So that is I actually... thought decimating. So decimating in the old sense. And this to, is to decimate is to, to reduce to one tenth of itself. Really? Because yeah, huh. I'm positive. Old decimation when we're talking Romans, uh, when they would do it as the uh, like a punishment, it would be they'd all ten people in your century, although there were really usually only eight, would draw straws, and whoever got the shortest straw out of the ten people would be killed as a form of punishment. So it was to decimate was to kill one of ten. Back then, well, but I don't know I mean, if that's still the based term. on based. If we're talking just strictly, uh, like d- dictionary meaning, to decimate would be to reduce to one tenth. In but, any case, their yes, population yeah, historically has the term, been. I just looked it up. Historically, the term obviously is used differently. Right, right. I won't bother with like it's. We know what this I'm talking grammar, about. This isn't grammar. This is left in the grammar. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no. This isn't. This isn't learn how to speak English day because I would fail that one. Um, <laughs> the uh, what was I saying? Basically, there's like. Somewhere between 50 to 90 percent of the population has been killed off by disease before – mostly before any conquistadors or white people are shown up because these are interconnected communities that do transmit germs between themselves because you know once one person gets hit or raided, if they are uh, in contact for any period of time, these are – we're talking bacteria more so than viruses – um, so they will spread uh, not just along, obviously, people, but along their pack animals, along any kind of, uh, you know, animals that you meet along the road, too. So there's there, – it's disease. We know that disease is like one of the, the main things that gave colonialism um, such a head – I mean not even a head start, but just like it's such a fucking stacked deck. And so, you know, th- despite that – there are still a lot of people living in this very well, uh, you know, aside from some instances, you know, people talk about the Maya kind of uh, fucking up their agriculture and that's why they disappeared. But that was like, you know, a hundred like 600 years prior to this. So there's like it seems like there was a pretty decent population here uh, and they were capable of fighting against the conquistadors and the Spanish and the colonists. Well, uh, it's cool that they put up a good fight, but unfortunately, I I mean, I'm going to guess just a hunch (laughs) that somehow the uh, people with the guns and the modern weapons did, uh, did pull out off a victory in the long run. Right. No, they, uh, there was constantly, plus there's like constant, you know, people in um, Europe were seeing this as an investment, so there was going to be a lot more money coming in. There were going to be replenished settlers, things like that, that, you know, you can't really keep up with when you're being decimated by uh, disease and then also, you know, also uh, attacked correction, violently. I, 
I did actually go double check, and it's reduced. My my uh, Latin was wrong. It is to be reduced by a tenth, not to Aha. a tenth. So ah. yeah, I was wrong all along. No I, I am, but hey, I'm a white man admitting he was wrong. Give me credit for that because <laughs> obviously, as a white man, I still need pats on the back. Thank you. All right, I'll pat you on the back. Good job. <laughs> okay, no, it's okay. Uh, anyways, but uh, I wanted to. I don't want it to seem like this was. You know, the conquistadors themselves were also not a monolith. You know, conflicts didn't just exist between the natives and the Europeans, and we shouldn't act as though the tribes and state units of the Isthmus were unique in any kind of, like, you know, backstabbing or internecine struggles. The conquistadors were just as capable, and they weren't a unified bloc. So when permanent settlements were finally were actually established they used slave labor that they you know got from indigenous people to build fortifications against other conquistadors as well as encourage incursions from uh rebellious nicaraguans or you know pre-nicaraguan uh people yeah imagine being told hey you've got to make sure that you keep anyone from rescuing you from slavery or else we'll kill you and i mean like yeah it, it's that's, that's a rough – It's pretty uh, despicable to think about. Um, slavery is always pretty damn despicable. Yeah. It's it's hard for me – not hard for me to imagine. Obviously, everybody, I think, in the modern age, it's incredibly hard for us to imagine what chattel slavery is like. But um, it's hard for me a lot of times to research, especially into like the – the well, once it's like well established, once like you know you're in like the late 1500s of colonialism, like this the the fact that there's been decades and decades of just horrible slaughter and dehumanization of these people, and it's going to keep going for like another 200 years at the minimum, you know, before they before you know largely mestizo or criollo people. Uh, which is, you know, uh, mostly people with Spanish or Peninsulare, like white uh, heritage, end up taking, you know, some kind of independence out away from them, like uh, away from their empi- European empires. Like, it's really tough to think about how dehumanizing all of that is. It's yeah, just literally a- <clears throat> generations passing where every single one of you is just property, not just even property. a human. Yeah, it's a, it's insane. and i wanted to hit on one other thing because like we know kind of the story of colonialism we know really what happened in these places you know uh generally nicaragua there's a lot of mineral resources there so that was a target but there was also you know food there was cocoa there was sugar there was fruit uh you know it's the normal staples that you can sell on the market back in europe um but one thing I want to talk on, touch on is like, of course, it's not just the Spanish and it's not just the Portuguese. By you know the mid 18th century, uh, the British are heavily involved in the Caribbean and all over the world. This is when you're getting that empire that where the sun never sets. Shit. Yeah. And the fingers in every single part of the you know uh, globe. Right. Everywhere. These stupid British fucks. Uh, but they were like. I think so along the Mosquito Coast, the British people had, you know, a few, the empire had a few outposts and they were protecting their spaces out there as opposed to um, fighting with their navy up further, you know, in the less profitable uh, American colonies that we know, know today as the first, you know, original 13 states. 
So, well, that sounds like a good thing because that means a noted historical good guy who never did anything bad, George Washington, was able to win. <laughs> yeah, George Washington, a man who uh, definitely had wooden teeth and didn't pull them out of the s- mouths of slaves so he could shove them in his own head. Um, that, that yeah, it was right. basically – as, as someone who's taken a high school history class, Kyle, I think I'd know about that. <laughs> yeah, you know. You know. <laughs> I filled in a couple bubbles for this. Uh, but yeah, it was basically – it's just, uh, you know, another distraction. The, the the war that culminated, I guess, in America's independence was in part like a world war. They were fighting in the Caribbean. They were fighting in Europe and they were fighting, uh, of course, against Spain as well as uh, France and these shifting alliances happened all over the place. So. The big reason why we as Americans today exist is because of the lack of interest of uh, the British in their less uh, profitable and more um, unruly settler colonies to the north. And they were more interested in their extractive colonies. So just one more hit, you know, on the whole, oh, we were such great guys getting out of, away from uh, taxation without representation and such. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, clearly, cl- clearly, uh, the exploitation of other people on our behalf is always worthwhile. We, oh, yeah. if anything, if I know anything about America, that is true. And so now we're getting into like independence time, like late into the eighteenth uh, century and early nineteenth century. So the Spanish Empire, um, which we often think of like. The Spanish Empire kind of starting really with like Isabel and Ferdinand, but they wouldn't have thought of themselves that way when they were in charge. And then when their uh, successor, Charles V, the Habsburg monarch, was in charge, he did not think of himself as Spanish. That's more like an aside. But like at its height, you know, it had the low countries uh, in Europe. It had uh, he was emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. He had all of the almost all of the Iberian Peninsula, you know, chunks of land in Austria and France and all over the fucking place. And then, yeah, of course, whole, he had this whole, enormous this empire in the Western Hemisphere and all of that. Much like our banks, too big to fail. Yeah, too big to fail, except that eventually, of course, it does fail. Uh, over 300 years, it really just decays. It's lumbering and dying and so by the 1820s mexico has claimed her independence as did a lot of the bolivarians in grand Colombia down in south america and then uh throughout you know mesoamerica and throughout central america these same places were breaking away and one of the responses was uh the federal republic of central america formed out of these kind of smaller polities making you know it was like chiapas it was guatemala it was honduras it was uh Costa Rica and Nicaragua. And so all of these kind of countries that we know of now were collected in a kind of federal republic. And that didn't last super long, though, because there was a lot of different factions that were separatist nationalist, you know, proto-nationalist factions, as well as liberal and conservative factions. And so they broke away into kind of the the nations we pretty much can recognize now. Yeah, it makes sense after, you know, overcoming uh your oppression you're not going to get it right on your first try out of the gate right plus this it's not as though the other empires didn't still have their you know financial fingers and everything so it's not as though these places are doing any of this on their own and so even the formation of these new like statelets didn't eliminate any of those uh you know pressures 
In Nicaragua, based largely in the city of León, the Liberal Party quarreled with their Conservative Party counterparts who were themselves territorially based in Granada. And these quarrels would kind of bubble up and regularly pop off into civil war. And this is where we're getting to our first big, big point. And this is where we're getting into a guy named William Walker, the person we opened this episode with. He sounds like a, just a, just an all-around stand-up <laughs> dude who definitely isn't a failure of a human being. Definitely not a bad guy, for sure. Um, so he's what we call a filibuster, a freebooter. And now William Walker is a pro-slavery American who took advantage of a civil war that had kind of started in 1854 in Nicaragua. And as a filibuster – now filibusters, they generally are – they're American kind of adventurers that are being supported, as we mentioned up at the top, by uh, financed interests who want to, you know, essentially wage a private war that then would incite America, the United States of America, to annex that space. You know, right now we're talking about yeah, the early version of like private military. Right. It's private groups. military. It's during the time right now. This is a guy who acted. He's like imbibed the ideology of manifest destiny so, so completely. Like this is bringing out more territory for America to control. A precursor so, to academy, as it were. But yeah, it's basically these are the guys who who took manifest destiny beyond the Utah territory and that, and decided to make it, you know, into a more explicitly imperialist like military project yeah it's academy it's people going out there you know uh setting up contracts to try and overthrow venezuela so that we can have an outpost there um but yeah the united states wouldn't necessarily actively engage because in 19 or in 1794 they had signed into law the neutrality act which supposedly meant that no private citizen would be allowed to do that but like like I mentioned before, this guy, Walker, had been caught twice in Mexico trying to do this, and both times he was let off. Like, by the time that he, that was happening, the, the Neutrality Act wasn't popular anymore. You know, people had imbibed themselves the ideology of Manifest Destiny that was taking hold. But uh, by the fall of 19, 1856, Walker and his well-armed uh, militia had taken Granada. He was initially brought in by the uh, liberal faction because, you know, they wanted to get the upper hand on their conservative faction. And let's be honest, you know, the conservative faction are like old aristocrats and the liberals are like the new bourgeoisie. So it's not as though we're picking from the best of the best here. Mm -hmm. But um, it is what it is. So he there basically – There were no good guys at the yeah. top in that. No. In, in, in this – that or like basically any era. This or now <laughs> ever, yeah. I don't know. There's a few good guys hitting the top in South America now, South and Central. Yeah, OK. Yeah, let me – A few. I should take that back because we're talking about a country that I think you know the Sandinistas did eventually take over. So that's good. But yeah, by the fall of 1856, Walker and his well-armed militia had taken Granada, the conservative stronghold. In his position as general, he seized control of the country from there, first through a puppet president, and then you know he made it direct control. And Franklin Pierce, uh, the president of the United States at the time, had uh, he he um, he recognized this this government whenever Walker had taken Granada. 
So basically he, you know, he paid off of all his soldiers and he got them to support him, but he had also kind of, uh, overextended himself some, but before we get into that, Walker also kind of, he prefigured the Jim Crow laws of the American South with a lot of decrees that he was giving out, basically punishing vagrancy and binding laborers to their contractors by threats of forced servitude. You mean decrees uh, like uh, this one? Persons without visible means of support who refrained for 15 days from seeking employment were to be adjudged guilty of vagrancy and sentenced to forced labor on public works. Yeah, something like that. Or maybe uh, something more like uh, any country made for labor for a term of months or years was declared binding into the parties thereto. And any failure on the part of the laborer to fulfill the terms would render him liable to a sentence of forced labor on public works. Hmm. Maybe. Maybe something like that. You know, just kind of force people to be stuck in contracts forever. That's. I mean, that sounds reasonable. I mean, but surely those were the only ones, right? Yeah, that was the only one. Oh, wait, wait a minute. There was also one where he... It essentially is reversing all the previous Federal Republic of Central America decrees. And by one of those decrees being reversed, the slave trade and institution of slavery was abolished. So he kind of flipped that one over so that he could have slaves again. Oof, did it sound a little something like, uh, these decrees were a logical outcome of the efforts to secure... American investments in Nicaraguan lands. The lands would be worthless to the new owners unless they could secure labor. It was inconceivable that American landholders in a tropical country should till their own fields. The ultimate result would be the establishment of a system of peonage. It would be... It would depress the poor native, but regenerate the country economically by the introduction of capital and superior managerial ability. That sounds like the words of stable people. That sounds like it. And to mention, um, this is all coming from a guy named uh, Scroggs in 1916. If he's bringing this to the forefront, it means he's clearly like, I want want to rat this guy out. I hate this guy, and I want him to look bad, obviously. That's Scroggs' agenda. Yeah, thankfully he's been dead for like a century. He was like one of those turn of the 20th century so-called historians that always like fucking – you know, he he basically agreed with William Walker on his assessment of black people. Oof, so he not wanted a good them look. to be, not a good yeah. Look. Um, well, I mean, surely he didn't write. Surely the Scroggs guy didn't write something as horrendous as horrendous as saying a more certain supply of labor could be secured only by the reintroduction of African slavery. Mm, you might be uh, thinking that he he didn't say that, but he he did. Uh, Oof, he did, in fact. Not, not a good look, Scroggs. <laughs> yeah, essentially, um, this all happened pretty much. I, I think like a couple, like a couple of weeks or months into his uh, reign in Granada, uh, right around September. And yeah, like we said, it, it, it's it, it the one of the biggest things for him was getting slavery back in Nicaragua because all of those. Pretty much all of South and Central America, aside from Brazil, which remained a, uh, you know, Portuguese, eventually became essentially the kingdom of Portugal because they got ran out of the Iberian Peninsula. 
but uh, every almost all of the other countries had abolished slavery when they broke away from the Spanish Empire. Well, you'd think that uh, hopefully that would stick in a perfect world. Yeah, you'd hope, but, uh, but unfortunately. unfortunately, people with guns decided we're going to make sure these guns go push you back into slavery. Is that okay yeah. with y'all? <laughs> it's not. Oh, I'm sorry about that. Too bad. And so, like his deci- his his decision to uh, you know make slavery no longer unlawful in Nicaragua was, of course, a welcome development to the slave states of the American South. You know, while Walker did not want to be annexed into the American nation uh, because he kind of wanted to have his own little kingdom, um, he did think that it might happen where uh, everybody really in the 50s, uh, 1850s, thought that the slave states were going to secede from the Union. Like everybody knew that shit. Yeah, it was it was the writing was on the wall. No one was yeah. surprised when the Civil War kicked up. And, I mean, uh, I guess they were surprised that the North decided not just to say fuck it and let him go. Right. And Phil, could you uh could you for me could you read this um right here? He suggests yeah, of this is something from William uh Walker or not William Walker, but Scroggs, who was yeah, Scroggs, author of the book the, uh, about Walker. Yeah, Scroggs is an apologist for Walker, as we mentioned, and uh, he suggests that Walker had no real conviction in his views and actions, supporting the reestablishment of slavery and reviving the Atlantic slave trade. So if anything, Scroggs is saying, man, he should have gone further in that abominable human behavior shit. Right. He's demanding more effort from this guy. Uh, He was a professor of economics and sociology at uh, Louisiana State University around the turn of the century. So take with that one, you will. Yeah, that but, sounds um, uh, that sounds like we had really stable people being put into our positions of education. Stuff, yeah. Um but anyway, let's get back. Let's but say colleges uh, now are brainwash machines. <laughs> yeah, no, a Marxist brainwash machines. <laughs> yes. Because um, it's Marxist to say maybe we shouldn't hate gay people. Right. Yeah. It it is. It is. Um but yeah, so American business owners, people like the Vanderbilts, worried that their investments in nearby Costa Rica and Honduras would come to harm if Walker decided to expand his little Nicaraguan dictatorship and, you know, make a conquest style version of the Federal Republic. Um, and so there's this coalition, this history of coalition between a lot of those formerly federally republic uh, countries, you know, Honduras, Costa Rica, pretty uh, prominent among them, but also Guatemala and El Salvador. Uh, they kind of uh, banded together and defeated Walker, who was holed up in Granada, but he uh, he clearly just couldn't hold out. So he ordered his soldiers to dismantle and burn the city of Granada, leaving a sign that said Aquí fue Granada after leveling the oldest Spanish settlement in Nicaragua. And that, of course, translates as here was Granada. Yeah, heaven forbid, uh, forbid anyone else have this thing since I didn't get to have it. Exactly. That's always good, stable thinking. And this is about where our vignette takes place from the beginning. Mm-hmm. He he escapes, runs to the... Uh, eastern coast of the country and surrenders to american naval forces who uh repatriate walker back to america i'm sorry i'm sorry that you did some horrible war crimes buddy but we'll get you back on your feet we're the u.s government we're always the good guys and again this stuff is explicitly illegal by a statute that was put in place like what 60 years ago then so it's like a long-held 
about as long held as any law in America could be at that point. And he's just not fucking prosecuted or anything. And so he gets out at New York um, and people are excited about him because, again, everybody's like really into this Manifest Destiny bullshit, um, at least until he insinuates that the Navy should have fought alongside him and he blames the American yeah, you can do armed a lot forces. Of things. You can do a lot of things to America, but never hate on our military. Yeah. Don't hate that the troops. The <laughs> That's the only thing. You have to support the troops. And by that, I mean support war. But um, support what the troops are doing, not the actual people. They can go right, die. Right. They can actually die. See them dying on the street all the time. Um, he would return to Central America a few years later in 1860. He would fail to take control of his targets in British Honduras. That's along the like Mosquito Coast again. And in what is now called modern, it's modern day Belize. Um, and the British, instead of sending him back to the United States this time. We're he done gave with this them, guy. Yeah, they're fucking sick of it. Uh, they gave him over to the Honduran authorities who found him guilty uh, of inciting riots and being like essentially a saboteur of their government, and he was executed by firing squad. Rest in misery, William right. Walker. <laughs> so fucking suck a dick, filibuster bub. Um, and here's where we get into like the kind of meat of today. Uh, this is... When we're getting into uh, Jose Santos Celaya and the American in kind of incursions into his, you know, the coup against him that we committed. So he gets popped off in the firing squad and that kind of ends, you know, the that net, that that chapter of filibustering in in at least in this part of Central America. Um, and, you know, after after the liberal government in Leon is kind of done with and after. Uh, they kind of, I suppose, recover from Walker's uh, tenure there. Uh, about three decades of the conservative government, take the party that was based in Granada originally, takes over from in Nicaragua. But that eventually ends in the 1890s with the election of Jose Santos Zelaya, who's a liberal of the Democratic Party based again in León in Nicaragua. So not necessarily like the most far left guy ever, but certainly no, an no. improvement. Yeah, it, this is the 1890s. This is you know, um, uh, someone saying maybe we shouldn't enslave people. Well, yeah, that. But he's also he's kind of a quintessential. You know, um, you know this this kind of stuff was popping off all over uh, the the world, especially in in Europe and the colonial subjects of those European empires is kind of nationalism actual nationalism and uh, part of what this guy was doing was essentially he, he was he was forging a national identity and in part of that he was he was being a reformer he was moving them into out of this po you know early still colonial setting into kind of working towards a more modern industrialized you, you know sector sector because uh, so he he basically he improves public ed education he expands rail and steamship transit he initiates additional constitutional protections for people in nicaragua he, yeah he was basically the main the quintessential liberal reformer of the late 19th century as a nationalist it was uh, his drive to retain national autonomy that was counter to the desires of foreign investors namely those yeah. based in america no, your stuff belongs to us, obviously. Right. What are you thinking? <laughs> it, it, like, part of the big deal was, like, 
throughout the 19th century. So there's this river on the that that leads out into the Caribbean Atlantic side of Nicaragua called the San Juan River. And you can take that river. It kind of winds its way through to a large lake called the Lake of Nicaragua. And then through the other side of that lake, you can get into the Pacific. And this was kind of the longish way uh, pre-Panama Canal of getting from one side to the other. Like if you were going from New York to San Francisco, that's how you would get to it if you you were like trying to get there in like 1870 or something. Actually, our, us being uh, good as good Americans we are said – we should be allowed to just do this thing without any – without like acknowledging that it's your land at all. Well, that – yeah. I mean part of the – a big part of these uh, economies were concessions given to uh, you know industrialists and companies and that was a huge deal. And one of the things that they thought they were going to get as like an economic boon is they were going to get a shitload of money from American investors, you know, by you know their standards, obviously the investors are taking all the money back home, and it, most of the people who actually live in Nicaragua aren't getting shit. But to essentially make Nicaragua the canal point, they were going to expand it, and um, that of course didn't happen. We know that that happened in Panama instead, maybe a country that we can study sometime later because we essentially you know forced. We we stole Panama from Colombia and then f made a canal and kept that canal literally as an outpost until 1999 where we nominally gave it back to the government of Panama who we had invaded, you know, 10 years prior to that. So who knows? But um, Nicaragua was essentially a big target for the canal plans until then. And – he was, you know, Zelaya was playing his playing his cards. He was like, so who's going to pay me the most for this shit? Is it going to be the USA? They have 90% of their the investment in this country is from them. But, you know, there's these big dogs over here in Japan who are trying to get, you know, into the modern market. There's these guys in Germany. They're catching up. So he's he's taking bids, and that pisses the fuck off of yeah, no, the United should, States uh, McKinley like, and America uh, is like Post. no we're entitled to this we we yeah. already have investments this is this belongs to us because i mean this, i know this is a very foreign concept but sometimes america can act a little entitled <laughs> Just i know this doesn't bit. happen too often but no like literally uh, not throughout the course of all american history <laughs> american exceptionalism means that you should accept that i have everything and i get everything and that's that's not entitlement that's just uh no, that's, that's just a divine, divine right, yeah. obviously. <laughs> Manifested destiny. Uh, so today, like for for the most part of this, uh, we di I did a lot of other information, but this guy, Benjamin Harrison, who wrote in a 1995 edition of Caribbean Quarterly, has a lot of really good quotes, so we're going to be drawing mostly from him. Um, if you want to get the first one, I'll hit the big long one. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, he states that it can be argued that the administration of Theodore Roosevelt had decided to get rid of Zelaya long before Howard Taft became president. William Howard Taft. Uh, Roosevelt, he was, president. but he wouldn't do such ba ba shady, backstabby <laughs> stuff. He's right. such a he's a he's a man's man. He would just say it to his face. Right, the guy who actively intimidated like a bunch of fucking islands in the Pacific, who was you know. Uh, he was president when we signed in the Platt Amendment or, or I mean, attached the Platt Amendment to Cuba's, you know, supposed uh, independence, who's basically 
rules over what became the Philippines War, which is a terrifying thing that we could talk about at some point. Uh, this guy is not as big of a teddy bear as one might assume by the <laughs> name Teddy Bear. Anyway, um, but yeah, to uh, to uh, wit that uh, the, the problems they had with Zelaya, the quote follows. Zelaya also hoped that his country would become the canal route for the watercourse connecting the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. It appeared for some time that would be the case, but Panama won the contest for the canal route. That decision by the United States, along with other factors, put Zelaya and Roosevelt on a collision course. The Nicaraguan leader became a fierce nationalist determined to supplant the United States as the most influential government in Central America. He engaged in filibustering, privateer, small private armed incursions. Act, uh, he, engaged in, uh, he engaged in filibustering. He engaged in filibustering, privateer, small private armed incursions activity to this end. He also cut back on the concessions the U.S. business firms. He also cut back on concessions to U.S. business firms and began to tax them at rates much higher than local firms. Before he left office, Roosevelt and his Security of State. Elihu, Elihu, Elihu Root, Elihu Root. Man, they got weird ass names. I know. Con- had concluded it was necessary to clip Zelaya's wings. Right. So this is like uh, he he Zelaya is undeniably making some moves in his neck of the woods. He's trying to yeah, be. Heaven forbid he tried to actually take care of his country and his people. Right. The, the guy's he trying obviously to do only the be thing. protecting the interests of the rich elites of America. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's the only amount. The only people that we should be taking care of are the business interests, which is really, you know, besides the fact that he Zelaya was upset, you know, that uh, through our imperialist war against the Panamanians, uh, had basically gone a, gone around the the negotiations that we had been in with with Zelaya for this kind of for the canal. Um, he also got, you know, Zelaya was pissing them off by taking away a lot of the concessions that he had given up over the that his government had given up, especially under the conservative governments over the last like 50 years. A lot of the previous, uh, you know, American interests were turned into state monopolies to try and do protectionist uh, economic policy, which is what, you know, a lot of people argue made. Britain so incredibly powerful in its rise to imperial domination you know so it's not as though this isn't it's like it's 100% real politic because you're like I did this exact thing you're not allowed to do this thing because I need to do it because I'm the powerful person now yeah clearly that was a just very effective uh very effective human uh, communication that we were having with uh, the people of Nicaragua at the time. Yeah. And so like throughout and- the end of uh, Roosevelt's t- tenure, uh, there are documents that show Costa Rica was being kind of encouraged by American ambassadors and consuls out there to to invade, essentially, to basically harry Nicaragua in its uh, border zone so that they would trap them and be able to kind of get more, um, I don't know, either push Zelaya out because of unpopularity, because of all these war, you know, these war pr- problems, or, uh, you know, at the very least weaken him so that they could get more concessions back. Uh, Costa Rica apparently seems pretty annoyed and didn't decide to be America's surrogate in that project. Well, um, it's, 
I guess good for Costa Rica for not just saying, yeah, we'll, we'll fuck over our neighbors. Right. Good, good job on this one. Um, so we're going to let's introduce whenever we got we're done with Roosevelt. We're done with Roosevelt and Elihu He's, Rook or whatever his fucking name is, because we've got a new administration in town, and that is the William Howard Taft administration, which Taft, uh, the fattest Taft. president we've including Donald Trump, the fattest mm-hmm, president we've mm-hmm. ever had. And he's also the only president to ever go on to become a uh, Supreme Court justice, which is really, I think, what he wanted in the first place. I don't even know if he wanted Honestly, to be president. Honestly, Supreme Court justice seems like a pretty cherry gig. Oh, hell yeah. You, you don't got to do nothing. And, you get to sit and tell the world how it has to live for as yeah. long as the rest of your life. You get, you're get you one of nine kings. That's pretty fucking baller. Yeah, I take it. Uh, but part, coming in with Taft is uh, his secretary of state and former senator, Philander Knox. And now, like, part of we, this we is like— that guy's stupid-ass yeah, name. stupid fucking name. Philander, Philander, whatever. I'm just going to call him Knox from now on because he, he had previously— like, there was an issue with him being put up to secretary of state because as a senator, he had—basically, uh, he had put through, pushed through a bill that increased the pay— of uh cabinet members so he went from voting for his own future pay rise to becoming the guy who gets the pay rise so it's fun does kind harrison of stuff. Perchan- does harrison perchance have like a summary of this guy for us <laughs> i think he does do you want to read this uh i mean i, I figured we, we we can alternate him yeah let's do it ba- his baseline summary the thing the the key takeaway should be that he was the epitome of corporate lawyers who came to dominate the State Department at the end of the century. Right, and he had among his clients the Fletcher family, the largest United States business investors in Nicaragua. Yeah. should be noted Knox was the principal shareholder of La Luz and Los Angeles Mining Company operating in Nicaragua. And he also pursued a policy known as Dollar diplomacy, as we mentioned earlier, it was believed that dollar investments abroad could be used as diplomatic leverage to obtain United States goals in international relations. So he's obviously working on behalf of companies, some of whom he may have an interest in to essentially extend not just, you know, uh, uh, these people similar to Manifest Destiny kind of being a, a very, you know, it's an it's a motivational force, but it's also very individualistic. It's uh, it's like the the it's attaching your personal success to the success of the nation. It's like a it's 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 almost deifying your personal success, and so that's kind of the the ideology at play with a lot of these mid or early twentieth century uh, officials. Is that there's you know, conflicts of interest don't exist because I'm an American and what is good for me is good for America. That kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, protecting the fat cat interests for his fat ass boss. Right, right. And so Zelaya partly is retribution, of course, for the U.S., like we mentioned, bypassing Nicaragua, detaching Panama. Uh, he was reducing concessions and increasing taxes on foreign investment. So we know that. And La Luz and uh, La Luz and Los Angeles mining was a target of these cancellations. Now, one of the people who works as the main uh, bookkeeper of La Luz and uh, L.A. mining was Adolfo Diaz. And this guy was the man that the United States eventually supported to replace Zelaya after the coup. That doesn't sound like any kind of conflict of interest in terms of what their agenda was. No, no, not at all. 
Secretary of State Philander Knox even suggested that the United States government would reward any effort to overthrow the government of Nicaragua. Oh well, so they're playing clearly playing very uh, above board and by the rules on this. They just right. they just want to have nice, open, friendly negotiations with the Nicaraguan government. It went from kind of like diplomatic uh, correspondence with people in Costa Rica to almost like just putting up a wanted sign and be like "coup leader wanted," you know. <laughs> So, uh, um, so yeah, the like, US, please oh, go on ahead. So the, uh, so it turns out the U.S. vice consulate Bluefields wrote the secretary of state that the interior men holding the office here are a debauched lot of greedy grafters, simply feathering their nests as rap- rapidly as possible. That sounds like, uh, the very high, very high positive opinions of, uh, the people there and right. how easily they were to manipulate. It was a weird thing because it was like there's there there's a few quotes I left out, but one that was like specifically uh, what when the Latin when the Latino comes into contact with the Saxon, his mind simply melts, something like that. And it's like, what the fuck is your deal? All of these guys are massively racist, obviously, like you would expect. Yeah, I mean, races they had like old school 1900s racism, which was mm-hmm. slightly less bad than 1800s racism, but right. still really, really fucked fucking up. bad. Yeah, <laughs> and so it's like he's he's basically while all of the United States uh, officials who are feathering their nests, like Philander Knox, uh, are still just great uh, fucking. They're great, like you know, statesmen. Uh, all of these guys are grafters. You know, they're they're grifters, and. Uh, Ben Harrison continues that the way North Americans did business in Central America was at least partially responsible for the graft that did exist, and it has been argued that the end result was a system of dependency in Central America. So that's like another point. It's similar to IMF loan logic. It's where you're trying to force people into these unequal relationships of power because you have sure all this money and you out. have all this shit so yeah you can never dig yourself out of that and in order to survive you rely on graft and corruption at least that's in one way how to interpret it and so like i i want to say too like this place that's going to be mentioned blue fields is a uh it's pretty much it's on the mosquito coast at this point it's no longer uh, a british holding it had kind of been ceded to nicaragua uh by britain and then like brought in as a semi-autonomous zone by jose zelaya um, it was basically a it was basically a place for the u.s rich assholes to yeah, hang out and exactly like, this is this is our this is our little chill pad our, yeah. own, per, our own personal private rich person embassy mm-hmm. yeah pretty much all the uh american investors had headquartered their nicaraguan interests there you know ambassadors and consuls were based there including you know knox's nephew who was sent here a few times he had already gotten in kind of trouble for trying to start up a revolution in honduras um, but yeah, the like US trying to do coup stuff, that seems unlikely, <laughs> but this is, yeah, n- not likely at all, but like, this is the place where, uh, eventually the, the rebellion that would be the context for the coup, uh, kind of starts off and it's headed by this guy named Juan Villastrada. He was the governor of that district where Bluefields was located, this, uh, kind of Escondido slash Mosquito Coast area. And he, he an excellent candidate for yeah. uh, leading the revolution, according to Harrison, an excellent candidate for leading the revolution against Elia, according to Drew Leonard. In uh, July 1909, Estrada notified the American consul in Bluefields that he needed $50,000 and 2,000 rifles 
as well as the disinterested moral support of the United States in order to bring about a coup d'etat. So it sounds like they really uh they were really just uh being very very uh, charitable about uh their how they were going to deal with this. Literally mm-hmm. just throw some money and guns at it. Yep. Call it and call it a done deal. Yeah. And I mean like Estrada uh was pretty much, you know, he was supported. Uh, Benjamin Harrison continues Estrada had been assured of the support of the American business community and had in turn promised to end the Escondido River monopoly as well as make other concessions to foreign interests. Like that was one of the uh, that was one of the national monopolies that uh, Zelaya had established. He he Basically, taken they, over they, the steam lines. Yeah, they just they told Estrada, "Hey, you get to be president. Don't worry. I mean, we'll own we we in America will own all your stuff, but you get to be the guy at the top. So mm-hmm. seems fair." And like we don't necessarily go need to go too deeply into Estrada because it's it's a similar playbook as we've seen, you know, with the Mujahideen, with uh, people all over where we do these kind of color revolutions, essentially supporting a conservative faction that's willing to give up concessions. And, you know, uh, someone who to quote actual U.S. naval officers was there to just get rid of Zelaya. Yeah, that was that's his whole what purpose. it is. And Estrada, you know, he had his men in Washington asking for aid, and that continued. It didn't stop at $50,000 and 2,000 2000 rifles. It kept coming in. You know, we have – there was one instance of um, Honduras seeing an arms shipment being trapped, you know, uh, being sent to Estrada's people on the Mosquito Coast and in Escondido. Uh, and they held up the ship because it was in violation of their neutrality laws. And, of course, the United States was like, we will fucking invade. Let that shit go through. And that's what happened. This is like they were basically – they were notified. The 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 State Department yeah, were-, were notified that there are several of us in, in speaking about Estrada's men who are prepared to do anything in order to drive Zelaya from power. These are the people that they're working with. Yeah, so they're just flat out warning the citizenry, hey – We'll just start flat out murdering whoever, so don't stand up to us. Mm-hmm. And it should also be mentioned that somewhere – the British think that it was somewhere around 70 percent of the Nicaraguan people supported Zelaya. And uh, earlier, you know, in the late 1890s, they thought it was more like – people were outnumbered basically five to one in support of Zelaya. Yeah, that's uh, clearly clearly someone who should no longer be in power because mm-hmm. all the people like him. Yeah, that seems that seems reasonable. Right. It's been estimated by the United States government sources that Estrada received at least a million dollars in aid from United States business infect, uh, investors, which is oh, it should be it should be noted is uh, over thirty million in today's money. But also, it should be noted that the amount of profit they made by wringing Estrada's useless uh, presidency into their own pockets was well over what they paid. Yeah, very very much over that. Yeah. So, uh, the yeah, the, these reports could have stated stated that without the support of these firms and U.S. troops, the revolution would have failed. So, big surprise! Without our massive military intervention, they Zelaya could have just kept doing his keep Nicaragua keep right. Nicaragua strong thing. Yeah. No, it was entirely um, unlikely at 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 points until uh, really until the monopoly was you know. Uh, threatened there was really no reason to believe that uh you know that that Zelaya's government would fall i mean it's 
seems seems like it would be unlikely if seventy percentage of the people at that time supported him. Uh, one of the guys that we had set down there, uh, Rear Admiral Kimball, referred to the United States businessmen, specifically in Bluefields, as so-called concession hunters who were only supporting the revolution because of profits. Obviously, what? color me surprised. <laughs> who'd have guessed? Smedley Butler, also called Old Gimlet Eye, resented being nicknames what were dumb back then too. <laughs> N- real names and nicknames. Were real names dumb and nicknames. Then. Admiral Kimball, fucking Smedley, Old Gimlet Eye Butler. Well, he resented being what he called to be a soldier for the investments of American enterprise, and he knew that the Taft administration wanted its own puppet government in Nicaragua. Later, when it became to When it became difficult to accomplish that goal, he wrote to his wife, I practically took command of the government army, about 4,000 men, and have been issuing instructions to Chamorro, government's military leader, all day. This move of mine must not become public, for I really have no authority for such a course, but it is the only way for this government to win, and the State Department, I surmise, is anxious that the conservative government should continue in power. When Knox made a good will tour of Nicaragua back in uh, 1912, later after this coup, anything he got anything but goodwill from Nicaraguans. That year, the United States had kind of allowed elections to be go, go forward, but he only allowed support. They only allowed supporters of Diaz to vote, which you know, not great. Yeah, it seems uh seems like a very fair election, and uh. Definitely not something we'll probably have on our own American elections pretty soon, which are already fucking rigged. But yeah, we can yeah. rig them. We can rig, we can always rig them more. We can always get more rigged. Uh, in any case, all that material kept flowing into the country of Nicaragua, and the rebellion continued until Zelaya resigned his post as December, essentially trying to stave off a United States occupation, which of course would come three years later. Anyhow, his like, uh, maybe, six- maybe if I give them what they want, then they won't be terrible oh they're still terrible (laughs) oh they're still awful his uh successor was this like really popular doctor named jose madriz but the americans were like fuck though no that ain't happening and so they continued their support for estrada who you know rebelled against madriz and shot his forces until he eventually was ousted too and estrada himself would take the seat atop the nicaraguan power pyramid but only temporarily, as the Americans are saying that America <laughs> will happily cast their puppets aside in a heartbeat if it means more profit. Uh, yeah, that, they had kind of a more pliant uh, officer in mind. Well, uh, who was this? Who was this fellow who was even more of a useless, uh, <laughs> uh, simply uh, arm of the United States will? Well, when Estrada came to power, he was he <laughs> was encouraged to name uh, a man we've come across before, Adolfo, Adolf Diaz, as his vice president. And then when he was forced to resign, obviously, the the man of American finance and bookkeeper of La Luz and Los Angeles Mining Company was the natural fit for the presidency. So you're and- saying that it, it, the most common sense uh, choice for someone to lead in that time was someone who was literally tied directly into american money yeah yeah something like that yeah 
that seems like a good leader for the people of Nicaragua. They, he, he clearly has their best interests at heart. Absolutely, which is exemplified by the fact that while the uh, treasury of Nicaragua was essentially ma- de- empty by the end of this rebellion, uh, he paid himself out of it for the amount of money that he had given to the rebels. So great stuff. Yeah, it sounds – That uh, also was copied – like it wasn't just him taking that money. They paid about another half a million dollars back to the investors for that money that they had <laughs> invested in their uh, – in the rebellion. So even that $30 million number that they today would have spent is more like $18 million. Yeah, so clearly the United States uh, took a they, – they definitely didn't – steal away massive profits from this at the expense of the well-being of Nicaraguan citizens. Nope. Nope. And they certainly didn't uh, do the early version of loan sharking. They wouldn't do that anything like that, right? Never. No. That's, no. I mean that's a step too far. After Look, the, after every after already bankrupting the country, you're not going to like full on go leg breaking loan shark on them. That's What just, are we supposed to do? Not have loans? What this is a this is a uh you know what? What's the thing that Biden said? Like the international consensus, the rule of law of globalism, or some shit. I can't even remember. But it's basically, you know, yeah, you you've hit it on the head. It's it's prefiguring the the IMF. It's basically we set them up with a big old loan, turned Nicaragua into a protectorate. Sim- similarly, how we had turned Santo Domingo into a protectorate, and uh, you know, it wasn't it wasn't immediate we had 10 years for them to be wallowing without any kind of money except for the ones flowing in by american investors who kept you know who saw the country open up for them again and but when the loan was ratified it came with the stipulation that 51 percent of the stock of the national bank of nicaragua was in the control of united states bankers and that same so basically what you're saying is much like we can, much like you can own companies by having majority stock we literally decided no we're just going to own a country with people living in it we mm-hmm. this is ours now yeah we, we have the majority stock we're majority shareholders this is our property right yeah this is so like a part of the thing that created um the american empire i'm reading this other book called how to hide an empire um and the I can't remember exactly his name's like Imerwar. I'll I'll find it eventually, but I'm sure I'll mention it again. But uh, he his contention is that the system of territories and protectorates is like another way of rationalizing our empire, and that's what we did. We basically did an economic protectorate in Nicaragua, essentially owning that country through its bank and through its transit systems. Well, it sounds like Nicaragua is in pretty dire straits where we leave it, but there's uh, still plenty of Nicaragua to go around by the looks of our future episode lineup. That there is. You know, today we're only – we're ending it here where America has this protectorate in place where uh, the country has been torn apart by civil war for, you know, after a brief period of a few decades of conservative rule, which, you know, ultimately was – not great for everybody and ended in Zelaya's rule, which, of course, ended even worse for everyone in civil war. Uh, we're about to head again into another series of conflicts that will produce what we know now as the Sandinista movement with a, a very colorful figure known as Augusto Sandino. Very cool dude. Wears a really nice hat. 
Well, um, I guess we will have that to look forward to. But for now, we'll just uh, put ourselves in the position where Nicaragua is basically under U.S. ownership and uh, under new management. <laughs> and it's uh, not looking so not looking so good for them. Not so hot. No. But now we jump back into the present because it is time for the time honored tradition of the news blast. The news. We'll start off with just a sad story. Uh, you know, you know how the cop we we had we talked about that cop funeral just uh, just a <laughs> week ago. Yeah. Well, apparently, like literally the day after we finished talking about it, uh, the cops are decided to go ahead and just flat out murder a completely innocent dude sitting on his couch. Rest in peace, Amir Locke. Yeah, he was. Um, if anybody the backlash the... was naturally. Eh. Yeah, I mean, there's the people of Minneapolis where this occurred, of course, and also where. Uh, I, you know, the epicenter of the movement uh, that followed the murder of George Floyd started, at least. Um, yeah, there was a brief period of like rioting and stuff, but that settle was just like, yeah, ah, well, it fell off, this. and they, nobody paid any fucking attention to it in the news. I mean, I yeah. saw the video is pretty disgusting. Um, the cops, SWAT cops, are executing a no knock warrant. Um, and Amir Locke is asleep on his couch, which is, you know, when you go in through this apartment, you pass the kitchen on the right. And right there, he's sleeping on his couch. He basically sits up and he's freaked out because somebody's fucking broken into his house. And he reaches for the gun that he has, supposedly, at least that's what they tell us. You that's can't really claim, tell from yeah. the you can't really tell from the video, the video. It's nine seconds long before the guys open up so. and kill him. Um, in the cop's best case defense scenario, it was in fact a gun. But in a just as likely case scenario, it was like his. It was like his cell phone or some shit. Right? They <laughs> say that it's it, anyhow. Like no castle doctrine if you're a black person and the SWAT comes to you. You know, no stand your ground laws. You're you're fucked. You get executed by these and, guys. And these it's, and it's not, it's already been made clear. These cops are not like we're not even gonna have a trial. They're, they're fine. They're they were in the right. They did what they had to do. Right. It's like we do this every couple of years too. Besides the fact that you know we were, you we all thought we I I particularly thought we were in like a sea change. Like shit was going to be different after. Yeah, we were going to start seeing people be like, "Oh, fuck the cops for sheer for serious. This is this is unacceptable. We're going to start burning police stations down." Or at least like whenever there were, at least there would be some kind of follow through when people say things like yeah we're not going to do chokeholds anymore except that that was already on the books yeah we're not going to do no knock warrants anymore except that that was already on the books but no two years after this shit that jackass what's his name uh the mayor Frey or whatever this he's like a late millennial dweeb fucking dickhead kind of person who would talk about a you know their you know try and be performatively woke on their podcast about union busting or whatever he's that kind of person he's like yeah we can't do no knock warrants even though he had said that before so it's like what the fuck the, the, does it matter no you killed another man yeah it's uh i don't know it's pretty fucked up what was just becoming acceptable for police to do in this country and uh i mean has always been acceptable but for a brief period there we were mad about it yeah and we decided now nah, we're done being mad that's too much work right too much so uh on. anyways amir lock uh Rest in peace. Very sorry to you and your family, loved ones. 
Um, and also, fuck all all cops are bastards. Don't never forget a cab. It remains true to this. It remains true and will likely remain true for the rest of this country's tenure as a capitalist nation. Mm-hmm. But let's move overseas across for just a little bit. We're gonna l- take a look at. One of what what most Americans consider the biggest news of the last week, and that is the Olympics. And there's a whole bunch of little tidbits of the Olympics we're gonna kind of touch on throughout this little discourse. But uh, we're gonna start with Eileen Gu. So, mm. Kyle, how familiar are you with this uh, with this woman? With Gu Eileen, uh, the, I've been following China daily, and they've been taking the uh, sinicized version of her name, which I think is kind of fun. Um, I'm not all that. I you know I don't. I'm not a I'm not an Olympics watcher. I don't really long, give a long shit. Long story short, um, I mean, she was uh, she's uh, she's uh, half Chinese who was living in America for a good long time mm-hmm. and decided to move back to China a few months before the Olympics because she's like, you know, I think it's better there. America sucks. Right. She has and, uh, access to their citizenship so she can. Yeah. Similar to like a lot of uh, soccer players. Uh, their parents are from like fucking Germany, but they were born here or other way around like their parents are uh, american service members but they live their entire life in germany so they decide to play in the internationals for america or whatever nobody yeah, really gives anyways, a shit when um, it's that way but yeah she moves back to china and lo and behold she's really good at what she does and wins the gold medal in the women's big air uh, snowboarding mm-hmm. and obviously this is just one of the many examples of china cheating and rigging their olympics right now and for the record i'd like it noted Every country rigs the Olympics when they're hosting a little bit. And I mean, I'm not going to say China is above all fault, but I think, but it's a little ostentatious that suddenly they are the most evil thing to ever have eviled and uh, the ultimate empire of badness because they won a gold medal with their citizen who legally moved back to their country. Right. I mean, um, Jesus Christ. The woman's, she's 18. Like, let her just fucking get silly life. stuff. It's silly. But uh, this is not the be- this is just the beginning of Olympics controversy. So we also have uh, more. The, the real cheating comes in when you look at apparently one person on their Twitter, some Russian athlete posted her, her picture of her quarantine food, which was a nasty ass looking tray of very mediocre food. Um, I mean, still still didn't look like as bad as like some school lunches I've seen and stuff. <laughs> but, you know, so worst case scenario, that's the truth. And they gave her some shitty food. And uh, th- there was an apology even issued by the Chinese government over this. But we don't we don't talk about that, even as even if it's true. Right. There was an apology issued. Um, but th- that's also just one Russian lady saying this on her Twitter and then saying, like, don't don't at me. It's it's hard fact. I promise. It's not just some picture of a nasty ass tray of food I took. I did also um, just watch an American athlete who was like raving about the food. She was like, oh, my God. Oh, yeah, no, sure. well, yeah, if you're if you're not in quarantine, we have plenty of video like Sean White took a video of the village they live in. And apparently it's pretty nice, pretty nifty. But yeah, if you're if you, they're saying that the quarantine people are getting horrible food, or what another person said, instance, that another quarantine person, she said they just starved me for three days. They didn't give me any food for three days straight. Trust sure. me, sure, for real happened. I um, believe that. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So I mean, that's I mean, I don't have definitive proof one way or another, but my common sense tells me it is more likely that these people are just trying to reach out for some attention mm-hmm. um i mean and it's of course the, it's then of course, right then of course there's the people who are like oh well i had covid two times and now they're telling me i can't compete that's more chinese cheating it's like you know you, 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 you have you, covid you, yeah. you're going to get people sick 
whatever. So, China, it, China is rigging the Olympics in every way, shape, and form, and should be. It should be noted that this is the most evil thing that has ever happened in all of Olympics history. Yeah. And every other country that's hosted was always the most upstanding, noble greatness. Right. Brazil was great. They didn't just use that as a, a, a pretense to. Uh, create a judicial coup and take over the country for people like bolsonaro you know the la olympics were great because nobody no homeless people houseless people were swept off the streets and had their uh yeah in mass the uk the uk the london olympics uh definitely there wasn't literally these exact same controversies but they just got swept under the rug within Mm -hmm. seconds of them being posted (laughs) right it's not as though giant police budgets that are made for the olympics uh just stick around forever yeah but suddenly China is hosting, and oh, this is untenable, and we mm-hmm. should – how could this possibly have happened? Clearly the most evil authoritarian country that's ever existed because the word authoritarian holds so much weight. Oh, man. It's worth it. It's worth using all the time. <laughs> all right. But yeah, that's uh, that's more or less the Olympics. Uh, racism is okay now because uh-huh. it's happening to specifically the people who have a communism. We did uh, Russophobic, uh, Russophobic racism for a while. Now we're back on the sinophobic racism. Let's. Uh, it's funny because China used to be the Republicans there. thing, but now the Democrats are allowed to do it too. Oh yeah, no, they're just gonna <laughs> it, both of them. I, it, again, the 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 lines between those two factions of the one party that rules America, who um, just really doesn't. They they keep blurring more and more. Well, let's uh, let's head back over to our shores, though, because uh, it, honestly, there's not much we can do for China other than just no. acknowledge that the news might be a little, just maybe a little biased. Good job for Island Goo. Good job, Goo Island. Yeah, yeah, good to Frost Island Goo for your gold medal. Didn't watch, but I, it sounds cool. She's good at what she's doing. I mean, like, yep. good for her. Just fucking, yeah. like, yeah, I would leave too. <laughs> <laughs> I would change. I hope that, that I hope that uh, she continues to be a like an influencer and says, you know, China is seriously better than my time in America as someone who lived in both places. Right. She could be the new Sean White of this yeah. age. But yeah, let's uh, move back over to our shores and look at uh, the United States Postal Service. Who uh, we had a bi- bipartisan. We can do it, guys. We can do bipartisan stuff when it comes to slashing the budget by almost fifty-seven billion over the next ten years of one yep. of our most important institutions. Yep. Uh, a very cursory reading showed me that it was kind of a um, – so part of the justification is to remove that old rule from the 06 legislator that was basically aiming at kneecapping uh, the post – the Postal Service by proving that yeah. they were very un – that they, that they couldn't turn a profit or whatever, as if that was the point of having a postal and service. I, I saw so much of that. Like, oh yeah, we're getting we're going to the postal office has lost money over the last few years. It's like it's not a business; it's a service. You fucking right. assholes! It has service in the name. Right? It's insane. <laughs> uh, but yeah, basically they they're saying like they're not going to have to you know for the next fifteen hundred years or whatever prove that they have enough money to pay for people's benefits. But now they instead of paying for people's benefits, once you retire, they, they you're replace it with off. just nothing. Just yeah, fuck you don't off. get any <laughs> pensions anymore. You don't get any, uh, you know. And your you Medicaid know, is the shitty healthcare. U.S. Medicare that won't. Yeah, like, you just go on Medicare. Anything. You just go on shitty, mostly privatized Medicare anyway. Yeah, so if you actually get sick with something real bad, you're still going to be paying out of pocket. Good yeah, you're fucked. Good luck. Go pay a ridiculous <laughs> fee for Medicare Advantage. So uh, yeah, we cl- clearly bipartisanship is possible when it comes to kneecapping one of the most important institutions in our country. So do it. good, that's good to hear. Mm-hmm. It's war and privatization. These are the things we can agree on. I mean, it hasn't passed in the Senate yet, but 
Come on. It, it, yeah. it, it, it was a 392 to 72 or whatever in the yeah. House. So. No, that shit's getting 90 <laughs> votes. I'm not. Yeah. So uh, in other news, our good friend Anthony Fauci is back, and he wants to let us know. So you know last time when I said it was good and COVID's over and we're done? Well, I, I was I may have been wrong that time, but don't worry. Now we're really done worrying about COVID. In fact, we may even be able to start lifting mask mandates again pretty soon here. Can don't worry. Can we just stop doing this? Just like <laughs> – I don't get it. What are you all getting out of this? What is, what's the point? Like, where's the what's the fucking point of being like, oh, yeah, no, I was now it's OK. It's like every the sooner time we can get to the sooner that we can get enough Americans to believe it's OK, the sooner we can go back to maximizing profits. Right. It's as if they're not already maximizing profits. Oh, and, they yeah, just, and they've been ugh, like the report that came out this week about uh, the last month or whatever has shown average of uh 7.5% what they call inflation which to me just is to most people is just price increases because the actual amount of you know money in circulation hasn't really changed since the you know the fed faucet was turned off it's like they're the all of these people are turning massive massive profits from this thing and we're supposed to believe that it's inflation and not simply price gouging you know people are excited well, and that's actually on the topic of inflation this wasn't in my news blast but uh there's been some actual like evidence that like ceos have recently been saying that this inf- that inflation is a good thing and they're glad it's happening and we more of it should be happening like there's some quotes that have been getting pulled from some records that were supposed to be private that someone mm, dug up great this literal ceo saying yes this is great yes let's make sure this inflation keeps building well i mean it, it all is it, certainly if this is what they're going to be calling inflation i mean at this point it's like yeah obviously i'm going to stick with whatever this is because i'm making fucking money hand over fist and i get to blame people for having a 12 hundred dollar and a fourteen hundred hundred dollar check or some shit it's like hooray it's just like when you see those memes of like this is the poor person and uh, he has like super he has like super fancy headphones and a fancy mm-hmm. phone and stuff and then here's the picture of the rich person with the 30 dollar shirt and the 40 dollar pants and that's you know it's like yeah you forgot to include their fucking four hundred thousand dollar car or their 50 right. million dollar yacht or their Twenty two hundred million dollar house, you know. Yeah, also you, like you, you might want to put those accoutrements on his pants. Yeah, fucking seriously, so silly. I don't know. It's it's the, the the poor blame in this country just keeps getting worse and mm-hmm. worse, and uh, that is exactly how they're handling COVID too. Is well, uh, you know, it's, things will get better when you guys decide to stop being such little bitches about it. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I think it was Kurt Vonnegut in his book. In the book that I read a little bit ago, The Slaughterhouse-Five, at one point he describes America as a country of poor but a neurotic country of poor who hate themselves for being poor. That seems honestly very accurate based on the people I've met. Yeah. But yeah. Um, But if we could get just a little more dystopian with it, we have Uh – there's a new – uh, MoviePass is a company that has figured out a new way to do advertising, and that is when you turn on an ad – uh, if you aren't looking at the screen, the ad will stop, and you won't get cre- uh, you won't uh, get credit for that ad. And towards their movie pass, like ten cent, whatever you get for watching the ad, bullshit. Yeah, and that is a precursor to a this the certain Black Mirror episode that we should <laughs> yeah. probably do a review on at some point. Oh, that would be a good one. Yeah, <laughs> one of the few that isn't like right wing uh, agenda yeah, at the right end of the day. Adjacent. We're talking about the one where it's um uh, fifteen. Uh, so 15, 15 million marks points or whatever 15 yeah. million merits yeah that's a good one that one's actually yeah but anyways yeah so we're we're on the way to if you aren't if you decide not to watch the ad then 
you won't be allowed to use your bed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we will track your eye No sleep for you. You have to watch. So anyways, um, yeah, it's just awesome that now our phones are going to start tracking our eyes to make sure we're watching these commercialized messages. Guess, yeah. yeah it's, couldn't, couldn't possibly back expand further and be a horrible backlash on the human sentiment. <laughs> just keeps but yeah. getting better. Um, it, that is uh, – that is definitely not ideal, and we're you know you know things seem rough, but we do have a couple actual good news stories for you this this week, and uh, we're going to kick off with a smaller one that I just found out about actually, and that is there's a there's some people uh, at Manchester uh, yeah Manchester some people at Manchester did a study and figured out about this uh, have been re- doing some research and have mastered this new inhaled vaccine that is actually way more effective than the uh, uh, shot, and you know if we can find a way to make it the airborne version of the vaccine more effective. I like to think that we could just go ahead and just start pumping it into places so that people have to take it. But honestly, that's, <laughs> no, that's probably no. too dystopian. But, but uh, you know, you know it's, either Maybe. way, any, any way we can find new ways to fight COVID, I'm always on board. So <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to, I'm going to flood it with like uh fucking the Joker's laughing gas. No, no, I was thinking like this. Vaccine, I was thinking yeah. like uh, if you ever played Arkham Knight at the, when this cloud burst <laughs> is supposed to dis- disseminate scarecrows, you know, fear yes. toxin. But instead, it's a cloudburst disseminating COVID vaccine. Deal oh, with yeah. it. <laughs> but no, um, you know, any way we can find new ways to fight COVID, I'm always going to be happy about. But that's still an early, it's still in early stages, so I wouldn't expect to see much of that yet. But you know, still cool. Um, but even better news is finally we see any kind of recompense against the evil empire of Elon Musk. A lawsuit uh, was filed against Tesla for horribly blatant racism in their factories so oh, I'm, have you done any reading about this kyle i have actually missed this one i knew i've been paying a little bit of attention to tesla mostly because they have this silly uh automatic driver thing where um you can turn it from chill up to aggressive which just means that you roll through stop signs so awesome. that's fun <laughs> yeah no the state of california is uh has filed a lawsuit against tech uh, against tesla because apparently their factories have like a complete uh, complete lack of representation of black people in any level of management. But even more a trove of travesty, the N word is just openly used in these places, Wait, and that's for just real? okay. Holy fuck. Yeah. This heard, uh, according, to this, according to this article, the N word and other racial slurs were hurled at, uh, were hurled at black workers at a Tesla California plant, not just by fellow employees but by managers and supervisors. What? That's insane. Yeah, oh so there's God. a lawsuit out on that, and uh, apparently Musk was even like vaguely aware of the anti- of the racist of sentiments in his places and just didn't do anything about it. So it looks job, like this though. could lead to some backlash, yeah. which I wouldn't – I mean I feel bad for the people who got verbally abused, and that's just horrible. You know, like that sucks, but if Musk ends up actually facing some consequences, then – Maybe I mean you. Maybe you could take some comfort in your sacrifice being worth something. Right. Fuck him up, guys. Somebody, please. Yeah. Like, let's. I don't know. I don't think Musk will. This is a little probably blow over on him. He might lose some. He might lose a few of his billions and still have more that he could possibly know what to do with. I doubt even. I. Yeah. Honestly, he probably might lose millions if anything, and we'll just call it good. He tried (laughs) to pay that one guy five thousand dollars to stop tracking tracking his flight with uh, public data, which is like, wow. I also can give somebody two cents. Um, not even not even right. literally five thousand dollars to him would be 
based on i mean let's assume that you have ten thousand dollars right now which is probably more than i don't know whatever Mm -hmm. if you had ten thousand dollars then the equivalent of five thousand dollars to you for for elon musk money would be less than one ten thousandth of a cent oh cool cool yeah so you can spare less than one ten thousandth of a cent yeah i'll hand that off to you if you just stop you know, don't tell if anybody you, about me hanging out in the Bermuda Triangle or flying over a, a, an island with a name like Little and Saint and James. It's just zero money. Yeah, that's uh, it's terrible. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I just I I, ho- I mean I hope that these people get some recompense for the abuse they had to undergo. I hope that the lawsuit pans out for them and that they get paid for you know the horrible abuse, the verbal abuse that they uh, had to suffer, but. At this juncture, all we know is that it's in process. Hopefully, it leads to good things. But for now, just send out your uh, positive vibes to those people who yeah. were abused. Yeah, and we'll have to go to this stupid, silly courtship, probably, unless it gets settled. But who knows? But I'm, I'm sure we'll be covering the future of that lawsuit in a future news blast. But for now, uh, we are going to go ahead and uh, let you all carry on with your days. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for joining us for Left in the Past. Yeah, even though it's a different branch of the podcast we still want to send you all off with a good hearty dose of love and solidarity love and solidarity y'all it can be told in few enough words we are not certain of his intentions even yet they talk so i am told